You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning to everybody. I'm beginning a four-week series here in the Dean's class, and thank you to Andrew for uh, the invitation and the opportunity. I'm beginning a four-week series today um, on uh, the Bible, and there were some reflections on the nature of the Bible and the importance of Holy Scripture in our lives, um, and going to do so primarily by trying to engage Psalm 119, which, as some of you may know, is the longest psalm in, in the whole book of the Psalms. Um, so we'll, we're, we're going to engage Psalm 119, but today I'd like to give a little bit more of an overview of some of the issues that are pertaining uh, to the nature of the Bible and the significance of the Bible for Christian faith and practice. Uh, the technical terms of, for this is something like bibliology, or what is our doctrine of the Bible. Um, and I want to do so by looking at some texts in the Bible, uh, and then that will let us sort of ease into, over our next three weeks together, um, looking more closely at Psalm 119. Martin Luther tells a story of a man who died and, and awoke before the heavenly tribunal, And when he was condemned, the man, for his refusal to accept God's salvation, the man objected, I I never heard any word from God. No one ever gave me a chance to believe. God replied, I spoke to you every Sunday morning. And then the man replied, well, all I ever heard were the ramblings of an ignorant preacher babbling away about the Bible. (laughs) To which God replied, replied precisely, it was I speaking to you in human forms, form the eternal words of life. That's an interesting tale from Luther, and I think it speaks to the importance in the Christian life and the Christian tradition of the Bible as, and the preached word of the Bible um, and the life of faith as the means by which God is communicating his very presence to us. Um, to think God's thoughts after God is to engage the Bible in its material form before us and to try to order our thinking and our praying and our feelings in accord with what God has revealed here in his beautiful yet complex word. And that, I think, is probably one of the most important conversations that the church can have right now, especially given some of the larger cultural foment that's going on in our world politically and sociologically to think through what does the Bible have to say about these things in light of the ways in which the church has wrestled with them. So our, our Christian confession, especially as Protestants, is that our God is a self-communicating God. He, he has spoken. He's revealed himself to us. He's not remained hidden um, behind, uh, uh, behind his own being, but has revealed himself and spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and the written authoritative words of the Bible that witness both to him and the implications of what it means to confess Jesus Christ as the Lord. So this is really important. This, this, this tells us that our understanding of the Bible is an understanding that locates this leather-bound document that we bring to church and we read together with some regularity, that we locate this as, as, the, as the unique means by which God is revealing himself to the world and to his people in order to redeem and save them. Now, I want to hold that to the side because we're going to turn back to that issue here in a second because I think it's so, so crucial and important. But it's the Bible, and it's the character of God 
to take mundane things like words and so sanctify them or set them apart and inspire them so that they continue to manifest and to disclose to us the very mysteries of God himself. It's the Bible that is our sole authority in the life of the church because of the Bible's special relationship to Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't get the authority of Jesus in the life of the church without the authority of the Bible and vice versa. So the Bible has this unique role, this God-given role in the divine uh, moment of grace and the divine history of redemption that we participate in now, even today, uh, as, as believers. And when you think about this, we're talking about the Bible, right? Not, not some sort of abstracted um, uh, reality that we toss around in classes as we debate theological or philosophical contours of what it means to exist and what it means to be. We're talking about this thing here, the Bible. I brought one too. The book that some of you have had, I would imagine most of you have had since your childhood, encased in burgundy or leather, or black or burgundy leather, and that many of your mothers maybe read to you even in your, in your childhood. So think about what the Bible has in it. It has its stories about creation, how the world came to be, a wilderness wanderings, burning bushes, swords. We read this story as a family not too long ago, swords being lost in the fat of an obese brute of a man in the book of Judges. It's kind of wild. Harem warfare, or the, or the stuff in the book of Joshua that makes all of us feel rather uncomfortable and God tells them to wipe them all out. That's in there. Giants and slingshots. Poetry. Wise aphorisms. The despair of a preacher named Kohelet in the book of Ecclesiastes. Of the thunder of the prophet. Uh, and the narrative movements in the New Testament of the fourfold Gospels, we get the, revela- the revelation of God to us of Jesus Christ himself in the flesh. We have these theologically pastoral letters of the Apostle Paul that are rich and complicated at the same time. We have the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, the anonymous letter to the Hebrews, the last will and testament of the Apostle Peter, And that really strange, bizarre book at the end of the Bible called the Apocalypse of John or the book of Revelation. All of it, from beginning to end, in its least and most difficult parts to understand, has more important things to say about our understanding of God and the world than the best of our own philosophical or theological constructions. I want to say that one more time. The Bible, in even its more difficult parts, has more important things to say than the best of our theological constructions. Now, that's a tall order, I'm, and I need to make some, some clarifying statements here. That's not a claim that says necessarily that the Bible, in its literary form, is better than other species of literature as well. Notice the Bible is materially better as a literary document than, say, Homer or Virgil or Dante or Jane Austen. I mean, you pick your favorite author. It's not a claim that the Bible in its literary form is better literature than the, the, the great literature of, the, of the, let's say, the Western intellectual traditions. It's not a claim about that. It's a claim about what God 
has done by setting these words apart as the means by which he attaches his spirit, his life-giving spirit, to the church so that we can worship and pray and know and understand who God is and what it means to follow him and what it means to be redeemed. The Bible. Can I read to you, and I have it here stuffed, Article 6 from our um, 39 Articles of Religion and the tradition that we inhabit. Article 6 says this on the sufficiency of, of the Holy Scriptures for salvation. Holy Scripture containeth all things that are necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby. Now think about that. So whatever is not read in the Bible or is not a legitimate extension of what the Bible claims and says, an application of it, is not to be required of any person that it should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. That is a claim, a good old-fashioned claim, a Protestant claim about the sufficiency of Scripture to do what God has said that the Bible would do, namely to reveal God's own self in the person of his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can know how to pray and how to believe and what it means to be redeemed and saved. So before we move on, I want want to look at a couple of verses with you, a text in the Bible to talk about this. One of them uh, is Psalm 19. Uh, So if you have Bibles there, wherever you happen to be watching this, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Psalm 19, I actually think, is one of the richest texts in the Bible to talk about the nature of God's Word uh, of the Bible. Um, you'll, You'll know this. Many of you will be familiar with it. It begins with the declaration about what God has revealed about His being and His nature in the contours of the created universe around us. The heavens, Psalm 19.1 says, declare the glory of God. And the skies above proclaim his handiwork. In other words, the, the heavens around us, the glory of creation, witnesses to the glory of the creator. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And if we pair Psalm 19 with Romans 1, I think what we're sort of forced into a corner, theologically speaking, is to affirm the following. God has revealed himself in the contours of creation, but he's revealed himself in such a way as to make humanity culpable or responsible in light of the reality and the being of God. But how God has revealed himself in nature is not sufficient to make you or me redeemed. It's not sufficient to save us. In other words, we might be able to go out and appreciate the otherness of the divine being uh, by walking through the meadows or sitting on top of a mountain or or being on on the Gulf Coast and watching the sun go down. Whatever, Whatever moment of creation provides for you that kind of transcendental encounter with something other, and I don't mean to downplay that at all, but that experience of the other is not sufficient to save us. It's, it's sufficient enough to make you and I culpable before God himself. We, we need God to speak in other ways uh, besides his creation for us to be redeemed. This is what we're in classic uh, Protestant and Christian theology 
a distinction has been made between general revelation, God speaking through the world um, and revealing himself through the contours of creation and nature itself, general revelation, and then special revelation. With special revelation being the means by which God reveals himself in his son so that we recognize ourselves as sinners in need of a savior. That kind of spoken word in Jesus is a word that can save us, that can redeem us. And that's kind of where Psalm 19 goes. It moves from this general understanding about the heavens declaring the handiwork and the glory of God. The sense that one's encounter with creation, and I think we've experienced this. I, we had this a little bit this summer with our family. Uh, right before school started, we spent uh, three nights, four nights in Franklin, North Carolina in one of these Airbnb cabins in the mountains, and we just happened to kind of luck out and, and, and we, we got a cabin where our porch view was out over the valley of the mountains with the fog and the clouds coming through. It was, it was beautiful. I mean, every, every morning and every evening we were able to enjoy this scenery of God's glory and his beauty right in front of our eyes. I imagine many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That experience is an experience of something that's transcendent, that witnesses to the bliss that we know in an encounter with the beauty and the otherness of our creator God. And that's what I think Psalm 19 at the beginning is talking about. The heavens declare God's glory. We know what it's like to look out into the heavens and to see the stars in one of our camping moments and to see the beauty of the stars spread out over the heavens. That, the psalmist tells us, witnesses to the glory and the beauty and the bliss of God's own being. But we need more to be redeemed. It's not sufficient for us just to recognize that there's a God out there. What does it mean for us to be redeemed? This is where Psalm 19 goes. The law of the Lord is perfect, verse 7, reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure. And here we have now this transformational language, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They make the heart rejoice. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It opens our eyes. You see this, right? So you have the heavens declaring God's glory. We see God's glory there. But it's God's law. And and I'm going to use that term law there or Torah in a more broad and expansive sense of God's word. God's revealed word. God's spoken word. It makes our souls come alive. It's the means by which our souls that could either be dead or flickering flames, it's the means by which God brings our souls to life again. The testimony of the Lord, it's sure. In other words, we can place our confidence in it because it makes wise people who are simple. The precepts of the Lord are are right. They make our hearts rejoice. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It opens blind eyes and makes them able to see. And if you spent any time in the book of Isaiah, you know that that's a favorite theme in Isaiah. God's judgment is a judgment that makes their eyes blind, they cannot see. Makes their their ears deafened so that they cannot hear. But what's the moment of God's salvation and redemption on the far side of judgment? Answer, their eyes are open so that they can see, Isaiah 61, and their ears are enlarged so that they can hear. 
And here the psalmist, along with Isaiah and along with all other, all other kinds of places in the Bible, here the psalmist is telling us that it's God's word, his revealed and spoken word is the place where our souls that can be dead can be brought to life again. The fear of the Lord is clean, the psalmist goes on to say, it endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true, they're righteous altogether, and now listen to this, the language of affection that the psalmist uses. I I pray this actually for myself and for the people that I love, that our, our affections would be raised, not just that cognitively we would get it. And I think sometimes we have to operate on the level of cognitive assent to the truth before us. But we don't want to just have cognizant assent. We want our affections to be raised and elevated so that this actually makes our hearts filled with joy. More to be desired, said the psalmist, are they than gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. Your servant is warned by your speech, and in keeping them there is great reward. And and this psalm, by the way, ends with a verse that you hear around the Advent all the time. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How can the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord? Hearts that have been made alive again by the effective power of God's word, rejoicing the heart, making wise the simple. There's another text that I want to look at, and, and, and I've, I've referred to this text way more often than I probably should, but, I, but again, I, I want to bring us back to Luke 24 one more time, this scene of the road to Emmaus, because it speaks so um, specifically about the issue that we're raising here. What is it that the Bible do, does? What does it broker for you and for me? What does it offer us as, as a material entity that exists as something that we can actually touch and handle. That's remarkable. We can touch and handle this thing. What are the promises that God attaches to this? And we see Jesus himself modeling for us, again, what we would call the sufficiency of the Bible for God's life-giving and saving effective communication to you and to me. The Bible is the place where this happens, and Jesus models it for us on his, in his resurrected mode of being. Here he is on the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears. He asks them what's going on. He plays a little bit of this cat and mouse game with these disciples. And they ask Jesus, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened these days? And Jesus asks them, what's happening? And, And they say, well, we thought that Jesus was the Messiah but they killed him. So what you have here are the are these disciples making a, a confession. D- dead messiahs don't work. We need messiahs to be alive, especially as political agents to bring about a renewed order. And Jesus just died on the very emblem of the Roman imperial might on a cross. So we're, our world has been turned upside down. And then they tell Jesus, but we've heard some, some, uh, some fuss about the fact that Jesus might uh, not be in the tomb anymore. And so here Jesus is with these two disciples, and he's kept them from being able to see who he is. Jesus then chides them. And how does he chide them? For being so slow to believe what the prophets had said about him. And then he ends up having a Bible study with them. And in his Bible study that he has with them, what happens? He opens up Moses and the prophets, and he explains to the disciples all things concerning himself. 
And then we find Jesus at the end of Luke 24 in the upper room again with his disciples. And he is teaching them the Bible. And he's showing them how the Bible itself witnesses to Jesus and the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And when Jesus breaks bread, they recognize who he is. And that is, to my mind, a clear claim in Luke 24 that if you want to encounter the living Jesus, you will do so by word and by sacrament. You will do so by by the engagement of God's holy word and the encounter that God gives us at the table as he distributes his own life giving body and blood to us again. Word and sacrament. And the disciples make this incredible claim on the far side of their encounter with Jesus. And this is what they said Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures and taught them to us? That's remarkable. Did not our hearts burn within us? Think about that language in Psalm 19. Uh, The testimonies of the Lord revive the soul, um, enlightening the eyes. That language of the affections, more to be desired are they than gold. And the, the disciples said, when we had that Bible study with Jesus, our hearts actually burned within us because of the truth of what he was saying. Jesus models something for you and for me. He models something for the church and its universal identity, that if we want to understand who Jesus is, and if we want to know who he is rightly, and moreover, if we want to encounter the risen Jesus, we will do so by the engagement of the Bible itself, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the New Testament, the Bible as an Old and a New Testament canon, come to us as the means by which we have that life-giving encounter with the risen Lord himself. And Jesus models that for us here at the end of Luke's gospel. So our instincts around a church like this here at the Advent is rooted, I, I believe, and I'm so grateful for this, rooted and grounded in these affirmations. That God reveals himself in the total witness of the Bible. All of it matters. As one of my colleagues famously says, from Genesis to the maps, the whole thing matters. God reveals himself to us in that. And we also affirm this reformational instinct of sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. Not the scriptures stripped of anything that's ecclesial or related to tradition. It's not stripped of that. But it's the scriptures as the primary voice by which all of church tradition and church practice and church liturgy is to be ordered. It's the Bible that's the lens by which the whole of the tradition of the church is to be measured. Now, with all that said and a lot of throat clearing here, why is this important? This is important because the Bible cannot be abstracted outside of a theological context, namely, of God's life-giving communicative speech. Think of this. God has spoken. That claim that we make as Christians is really the claim upon which almost everything hangs. God spoke, and the world came into existence. God speaks his Son into the world and the flesh of a baby, and the word, John 1, 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. God speaks, and in God's speaking, that's the means by which God opens our eyes and redeems and he saves us. So we can't abstract our understanding of what the Bible is apart from its intention. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Why do we even have it? 
Why does the Bible even exist? And in in large measure, the answer to that question is the Bible exists because this is the means by which God sets out his purposes to redeem and to save those um, who are his. So the Bible is the Bible is God's means of drawing us to himself. I want to say another thing too about um, inspiration, and and then and then we'll we'll call it a day. I want to say something about the nature of the Bible being inspired. What does it mean to claim that the Bible is inspired? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. And I think it's right to understand that that's a claim about the Bible coming into existence. God did his, um, his spirit-operated work through human agents like Moses or Joshua or David or Daniel or Isaiah or Matthew, Luke. Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, God did his work through these human agents and the agents that shape the Bible into the form in which we have it. We tend to think of inspiration, and this is proper, but we tend to think of inspiration of what happened back then so that we could have the Bible that we have now when it was written and completed. But I would want us all to also affirm on some level a more dynamic understanding of inspiration. Not only was the Bible inspired, But the Bible is inspired now because the Bible is the means by which the Spirit of God continues to make his presence known to us. This is a really important reformational principle I think that we we affirm very much around here at our church. We don't get the Holy Spirit of God apart from the Word of God. And we don't get the Word of God apart from the Spirit of God. Word and Spirit are necessarily linked so that to have one necessitates the other. And this speaks to why the Bible is inspired. It's inspired because the Holy Spirit, God's very presence, is a, it enters into the life of our church in his teaching office to speak to us and to teach us. This is the location, the primary social location by which the Spirit of God teaches and speaks. And he does so principally through the Bible itself. So as we talk over the next few weeks about Scripture, we're going to do so primarily through the lens of Psalm 119. And, and maybe that could be your homework for next week to read through that very long psalm. But I wanted to just set some of the context for us about what it is, um, what the Bible is, and what we expect of it when we engage it. It's living and active to think of the Bible not as a kind of inert object, but something that pulses and lives and breathes in our midst, not just locked in the world of the ancient Near East or the first century Greco-Roman world, but it's a, a document that's unleashed and unlocked in our world right here now. It's the place where God speaks to us and communicates with us, not just back then, but right now as well. And that, I think, should create a deep sense of anticipation, holy fear, repentance, and a recognition of what it actually means and the gift that it actually is to engage um, God's holy word. Lord Jesus, we're in a time, personally and civically, ecclesially, um, where it's very hard to know where to turn for the truth. That can be very confusing for so many of us. But Lord, we know that we can put our sure confidences in your word. Not necessarily, Lord, in our ability to always understand it, 
but we can still put our confidences in your word and claim the promises that you make with it, namely, that this is the place where the mysteries of the universe are unveiled in Jesus Christ. And we need that kind of wisdom, O Lord, to shape the way in which we view ourselves, the way in which we view our church, and the way in which we view our world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.